Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this monthly Market Insights, Phil Attreed, Head of Wealth Specialists, talks to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, about Ukraine, inflation, COVID and the US yield curve inversion. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud. Hello and welcome to the April episode of Monthly Market Insights. I'm Phil Attreed, Barclays Head of Wealth Specialists. Once again, I'm joined by Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer. So we'll try and assess the month in the rear view and make some hopefully informed guesses at what we might see in the month or so ahead. Uh, Now, of course, it's been another roller coaster of a month in investment markets to finish off what has been a pretty turbulent first quarter as well. So, you know, Will, what would you characterise as the major features of the month just past and also the quarter from an investor's point of view? Uh, Phil, gosh, yes, there's been a lot, hasn't there? Like you say, again. So I guess, I mean, you know, war, tragedy in Ukraine has rightly dominated the news and all of our thoughts. And this is obviously further spurred from an economics and markets perspective. It's spurred, you know, worries about the cost of living crisis in many countries, the incoming cost of living crisis in the UK, particularly parochially for us, um, and also sort of energy supply, energy security more broadly, uh, among many other things. The financial market story of the year so far, though, probably is still kind of the sudden change in posture from the world's central bankers. It wasn't so long ago that this was expected to be a year where the central bankers would sit on their hands, as you know. And now we're looking at aggressive interest rate rises, moves following on from uh, moves already made, uh, essentially. Um, and, and, you know, now you've got sort of these worries about whether central bankers are going to, you know, have to push the global economy into recession in order to get a handle on, uh, in a ha- handle on inflation. And, and alongside that, you know, you've got COVID suddenly really emerging in significant cities in China, Shenzhen and Shanghai of sort of, you know, the latest outbreaks. And this context, you know, when you talk about the sort of the quarter to date, that's seen the worst start to the year for global government bonds this millennium. You've seen diversified commodities be the best performing asset class for the first quarter, you know, much like most of last year. And some of the biggest, some of the biggest sort of moves have been among stocks that were, you know, the pariahs of the last economic cycle and vice versa. So it's really been quite a year so far alongside all of that extra tragedy, which the world just simply didn't need. Quite. Now, if we dive into a little bit more detail and without getting too technical, the yield curve and, and the sort of recent sort of brief inversion. Now, I recall this being a topic, Will, that we we spent a long time on calls in previous years talking about and then it disappeared for a while, but it looks like it's back. And traditionally, it's been heralded as a reasonably reliable predictor of recessions. Does that have your team worried? Uh, well, I mean... Uh... We're never worried about anything, let's say it that way. Cool and calm as always. But, uh, well, certainly they are. I don't know about me. But I think there's some, probably three points to make here with regards to context on a yield curve inversion. So the yield curve, like you say, what it is, is when longer term borrowing costs are below shorter term borrowing costs for the government, for a government in question. It, mainly the US, you know, people look at the US because the US is, well, for a number of reasons, that's A, one of the economies where this 
yield curve inversion has proven to be most statistically significant, most meaningful, but also, you know, obviously it's still, you know, by some distance, the most important economy for the world economy uh, in terms of future trajectory. And like I say, there's, there's, there's a few points. So one, it's really about the intuition and that context. Now, the intuition behind this is that if your longer term borrowing costs are going below your shorter term borrowing costs, that sort of is the market saying, you know, all things being equal, and I'm skipping a lot of corners here, that short term monetary policy is too restrictive and you are or is about to become too restrictive and you're about to push the economy into recession, basically. Like I say, there's a few shortcuts. Now, if you look at the moment, it's hard to say that policy is close to restrictive really in much of the developed world. You've got negative real interest rates, sharply negative in some cases. Now, it may get closer to restrictive territory if central bankers carry on with their plans, but we're certainly not there yet and much can happen over the next year. So uh, it's probably a bit early on that front. Two, you know, like all the best kind of fairground soothsayers, the yield curve likes to keep its predictions pretty vague. And so... There is no corresponding relationship between the size of the yield curve uh, inversion and the the gap between the two and the corresponding ensuing recession. And I think the gap between a yield curve inverting and the actual recession occurring since 1965 has ranged between nine and uh, and 34 months. That's since the mid 60s. So quite a vague, you know, it's a little bit like me saying it's going to it's going to rain this summer. It's not amazingly, it doesn't require incredible foresight to be able to see. And unfortunately, recessions are pretty much like uh, rain is to the English summer. They're just part of economic life. The third point, and I think this is really important, is that yield curve inversions don't cause recessions in and of themselves. They are a useful summary statistic, let's say, so they contain some information for us. And usually what I would say is that, or what the team would say is that they're a useful prompt to be able to re-examine some of your assumptions and have a look around. Uh, we've got our own in-house recession indicator, which takes in you know a broader set of indicators. And at the moment, that's not flashing amber. It's still pretty sanguine about the risks of a recession ahead, imminent recession ahead. So, you know, we're keeping an eye on all of these things. But I don't think it's a it's not A, an actionable thing for investors to think about. And B, I'm not sure. I think the context this time is quite important. Turning to inflation, when do we think we might get enough information on this and and I suppose the wider economy? I guess the summer months are going to be quite important, particularly around that inflation story. It's been driving a lot of the headlines and market moves um, year to date, aside from, of course, the Ukrainian crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, Philip. It is the big you know, economics story in a way. Now, one of the things is, you know, some there are some forecasters who've long pointed out rightly that as you kind of lap some of the price surges from last year and stuff in the US, things like used cars and so on, there was a few other uh, odds and ends, that as you lap those, you get, unless used car prices go up by the same amount and more again, you know, you should get some easing effect in some of the inflation data over the course of the summer. Now, obviously, commodity you know, the behavior of commodity markets is creating, is going to create a significant amount of noise in inflation data for a while to come. And, you know, so, so, so it's unclear. I think over the course of the summer, I think it's right. You know, you are going to get more information on what's here to stay. But the thing to still focus on, I think, and this is, let's say, you know, evidence is pretty mixed. You know, the jury's still out, whatever else you want to use. It's really about 
the interaction of expectations with what you start to see in terms of wages, price setting, that kind of thing. Now, at the moment, in the UK, there are some concerns about inflation expectations. They're not easily measured, remember, these inflation expectations, and they're not speaking with one voice anyway. But this is the concern. That's where you start to get more problematic is when consumers and businesses cease to believe in the central bank uh, as an effective inflation fighting force, and you start to get uh, you know, that's where you start to get that wage price spiral that really does keep everybody up at night in truth. So, but we're not seeing, you know, sustained evidence of that yet, but definitely we can see the reason why central bankers are getting, getting busier, even if for some households, this is an extremely unwelcome extra burden on top of the cost of living crisis that's, you know, just getting worse in the short term. Absolutely. And then just uh, one final point I thought we'd end with. I uh, recently saw you making a point or heard you make a point about the economic benefits of diversity and inclusion. I thought that was quite an interesting end to share with our listeners. Yeah, I mean, uh, Phil, it was when I was reading, God, I was studying for a for an essay, for a university essay, for the degree, the master's I'm doing at the moment. And there's this guy, uh, a very famous economic historian called Joel Mokir, and he was arguing very convincingly, I thought that there's sort of three necessary conditions for a technologically creative society. You know, one, you need a cohort of inventors, you know, ingenious people who are willing to kind of break with the status quo, challenge their physical environment and so on. Two, you need the right incentives. And that can be ability to own stuff, so private property rules, protection from confiscation, those kind of things, or random acquisition by monarchs. And three, He made an interesting point about diversity and tolerance. And here the point is really about, it's encapsulated another quote from another very interesting economist, I think. And he wrote, uh, it's a lovely quote, I think, technological progress requires above all tolerance towards the unfamiliar uh, and the eccentric. And this is the whole point, that in a way, in order to be technologically creative, in order to come up with productivity, many people are arguing that you can just sort of educate a load of people in a certain subject and just pour them into an area. I think that underestimates how this thing happens. The kind of elixir um, of productivity growth is often, you know, making sure that there is dissent in economy, debate, and the ability to incorporate the eccentrics and the misfits into your growth process. That is the lesson from the past. And I think it speaks of diversity and inclusion having an economic rationale as well as one just, you know, a civilized society should endorse and abide by fully. And that is the key in a way, is finding ways to incorporate everybody into your process Mm -hmm. so that you can come up with new and fresh ideas about how to grow and how to improve. Absolutely. Well, thank you. As always, useful insights as we continue to navigate what is a challenging period, both politically and economically. And thank you, our viewers and listeners, for joining us. If you'd like to hear more, as always, seek us out on our weekly podcast, Word on the Street, where we share all of our latest views on developments. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.